we believe that Jesus is fully divine. He is God, but he is also fully human. And at various points in the gospel, we can see glimpses of Jesus' humanity. We can find when he feels things that we feel. Lent started with Jesus facing temptation in the desert. We are tempted. There are times that we see Jesus happy and joyful. There are other times that we see Jesus sad, even weeping. Two Sundays from now, when we return here for the fifth Sunday of Lent, we'll find Jesus in the 11th chapter of John weeping over the death of his friend Lazarus before he uses his divinity to bring Lazarus out of the tomb and back from the dead. We find times when Jesus is hungry. The loaves and fishes, he wasn't just feeding others. He himself was eating because he's fully human. He needs food just like we do. And so it would make sense then that Jesus could be thirsty. He said so on the cross. Towards the end of John's gospel, Jesus struggles for every breath while he's hanging there and he says, I thirst. Jesus claims thirst, brings him to Jacob's well in the gospel today where he encounters the Samaritan woman. But does Jesus really need her to give him something to drink? He is God. That means he was there in Exodus when God told Moses, use that mighty staff and strike the rock and water will flow forth from it. Jesus, he can walk on water in calm, stormy seas. He can turn water into wine and wine into his blood. I don't think he needs that woman or her bucket or that well if he truly is thirsty. He could make it happen all by himself. He has come to Jacob's well because he thirsts for something more than the water that's at the bottom of it. He thirsts for the conversion of the woman he encounters there. And yet he should never have been in that place and he should not have been talking to that woman. We hear the story of the good Samaritan and we think, well, being a Samaritan must have been a good thing. And yet it was anything but. Samaritans were just a little bit above lepers on the ladder of social status in Jesus' time and for centuries before. Why? First, it started as a political problem. Then it became a religious division. Then it was ethnic and racial. We have to go back a thousand years before Jesus was born. David reigned for 40, and when David's 40-year reign was ended, his son Solomon took over. And according to the first book of Kings, chapter 11, verse 3, Solomon had more than one wife. That verse tells us Solomon had 700 wives at the same time. He had children by many of them, and that meant there was no clear successor who was going to take over the throne when he died. With that many children from so many mothers competing for position, invariably a civil war broke out that would divide the whole country for a thousand years. After that, in 922 BC, there became the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria, thus the term Samaritans. And then there was the southern kingdom of Judah, where the capital was Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. Jesus spent most of his life down there. And that's where the true Jews ended up. For those in the northern kingdom, one problem was followed after another. Where first it was a political divide that separated the northern and southern kingdoms. Soon it did become religious. The people in the south didn't so much like people from the north coming to their temple to worship their God. And the people in the north weren't so sure they wanted to cross the border to go down to Jerusalem to have to do it. And so eventually, they built their own temple. And sadly, that would lead to the worship of other gods besides the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A political problem became a religious one. And then it became ethnic. 
when armies from Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire marched on Samaria and the northern kingdom of Israel. They took the men back to Nineveh as slaves. They intermingled their blood with that of the Jewish women. And so for those south of the border, they thought the people in the north, the Samaritans, had polluted pure Jewish faith and then polluted pure Jewish blood. And thus it was that in the Talmud, the Jewish commentary on the law, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin said, you can't go into the northern kingdom. You can't visit the Samaritan towns. You can't do business with them. You should not use their utensils. You should even breathe the same air or else their fate will become yours. They were considered to be Gentiles and to do business with them. In the eyes of a Pharisee would make a true Jew unlovable, untouchable, unworthy, and unclean. Jesus wasn't supposed to go there, but he so often did. Some of his greatest miracles were worked north of the border for the Gentiles, the Samaritans, because he's a good shepherd who leaves the 99 to look for the most lost, wounded, and wandering of his sheep. And thus it was that on the margins of society, he wanted the last to be first, the least to be greatest, and give them the hope of heaven, which through the Gentiles has been extended to us. That's why Jesus is there. She doesn't know that. And she's critical of him for being there. She knows that he shouldn't be in Samaria. She knows that he shouldn't be speaking to her. She knows that he shouldn't be willing to drink from her bucket. But after all that criticism, then they get into a discussion. The tables are turned as they begin to discuss her past. And it turns out she's been looking for love in all the wrong places. Five failed marriages. And now she's with a sixth man. He will leave her too, and her situation will not improve. But there's something about Jesus already knowing this without knowing her and without her admitting it to him that convicts her in her heart. Up until this moment, all the people around her had only condemned her. Jesus was willing to forgive her. That's the difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation isn't done because we love someone. It's because we want to be right and we want to be righteous. And so we want to feel more right and righteous by showing other people where and how they are wrong without showing them a way to change it. But Jesus... He comes along and finally for the first time in the midst of all of this darkness, he shows her that somebody loves her like none of those men ever did or no other man ever could. A love that can lead her to happiness and to heaven. He shows her a way out. He shows her a way up. He gives her a way forward. It's a new lease on life because she can unshackle herself from her past and she can live for tomorrow and look beyond the horizons of this life and see the gates of heaven being opened for her. And that changes everything for the Samaritan woman. She went from being critical of Jesus to doubting that he was God. And once convicted of her sins, immediately she becomes a disciple, running back to her town to tell other people what this man has done for her and to encourage them to seek the same path forward in and through him. It all started at the waters of Jacob's well. Jesus and his church have been doing the same thing in the waters of baptism for 2,000 years, putting us all in a new path not of condemnation, but convicting us of our sins so that we may repent of them, do penance for them, be absolved of them, and then, like that woman, have a second chance, a fresh start, and a new beginning. That's what gives us encouragement. This is all worth it. Whatever suffering we have to endure, whatever sacrifices we may make, the Lord is using all of it for our good and for our salvation. As we have discussed the waters of baptism, 
the third Sunday of Lent is also the time for the first scrutiny of those to be baptized at the Easter Vigil. We have many people converting to the Catholic Christian faith at Easter this year, but only one who is going to be baptized, and I invite our director of the RCIE to come forward, Mrs. Koval, to lead us in the first scrutiny. <laughs> 